All right. A few weeks back, we began a series called Radical Devotion, and the aim of this series is to take a deep dive into each of the elements of practice and worship that constituted the life of the early church, and particularly the church at its very inception, at its birth, after the day of Pentecost. It grew exponentially rapidly when the Holy Spirit empowered the Christians, went from 120 to, to a church of thousands in that one city in Jerusalem, as many of those same people who had witnessed the death of Jesus became followers of Jesus and gave their lives to him and to his people. And uh, something extraordinary began to happen in the life of the community. It became, you know, I've used the term before, a kind of a city within a city. There was a city of Jerusalem, but there was this whole entity, this institution, this uh, existence and community of this Jerusalem church and all the community life that was, that was happening within that one church. And part of what we're seeking to do is uncover each of the elements and, and explore what actually in many ways are, are the very mundane and ordinary things of church, but which when understood can be infused with unbelievable power and significance. And it's my conviction that the problems of churches is not a need to discover anything new, but rather a need to discover the old things and do them well. Um, there's a phrase in the Bible of going back to the old paths, and I think these are the old paths. Um, a lot of people are agitating for change and transformation. The argument often put forward is that in order to reach a modern and changing world, you have to change the church. And I think that's the exact opposite way to reach the world. The one thing the world needs is not a church which merely mirrors it and copies it and echoes it. It needs a church which is faithful to what it has always believed and always done and does it with deeper significance, deeper understanding, deeper commitment. And in, in, in committing ourselves to these things, I believe that we honor God and we experience his presence and power. So that's what we're doing. And we, we started by talking about the devotion to teaching, to the word of God as the very foundation, the base layer, the, the, the most fundamental thing upon which you build a church. Then we talked about fellowship, the experience of community, shared life last week. So let me read to you Acts 2.42 and we'll come to our third element today. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You'll notice from verse 42 that the third thing we're coming to says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and then to the breaking of bread. Please turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read to you from verse 23. This is Paul reminding the Corinthian church about how to do the breaking of bread. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed... In other words, the night before he was crucified, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You've got to remember that when the Jerusalem church was partaking in this practice of communion, it was a matter of weeks since Jesus had actually been crucified. So we're talking about very close proximity, not only to the events, but also to the very location where it took place. And given that this is a remembrance meal, it's designed to provoke and encourage us to remember the death of Jesus Christ and the reasons for it, you need to ask, why on earth was the Jerusalem church so intently committed to this particular practice of all the things that they could have been doing? Why was it that they felt the need to take communion, it seems maybe even daily, but certainly on a weekly basis? There was a predictable rhythm to uh, the way they were doing this. And I think that the answer was a couple of things. Part of it has to do with the fact that they, they, they knew that this was the most important thing that's happened in history, and they are embedding and cementing it and deliberately remembering and recalling it in the, in the community life. Um, I suppose, in, in some ways, the modern equivalent is this. You ever been to an amazing event, whether it's um, you know, the, the turn-of-the-year firework event or a great concert with your favorite band or something like that, and... You instinctively and impulsively these days, we want to pull out our phones and record the thing, don't we? Even though we're there, even though it's right now, we kind of experience it partly through one eye in front of us and partly through the screen that's also pointing in that direction because there's a, there's a human instinct to, to want to remember, recall, and deliberately cement these, something that matters to us there and then. And I think there's something of that is going on in the life of the community here. Jesus, you know, he's really just beyond the... On the the outside of the gaze, it's just happened. But at the same time, they are recording it and they're saying, this is unbelievably important. And we must never forget this. This is why we take communion. I think that's part of the way you can answer it. I think the other thing you can say that is this, that they understood, maybe intuitively or through their religious experience to date, that there is power in spiritual the spiritual power in habits, that habits and customs that you just commit yourself to in almost a routine and predictable way can actually have unbelievable power in your life. We know this, obviously, um, from the habits which you already do, which we all have our own unique little habits, don't we? But habits, not only are you committed to them, but they also begin to shape you in some ways, sometimes for worse, sometimes for better. You have that, you know, you have the habit of biting your nails. Actually, eventually, you end up with little stumpy nails, don't you? So they change you. They actually, that, that habit changes your body and your appearance in some way. You have the habit of um, getting into the habit of running. You change your body. It changes you. There are habits of mind which change the very structure of your mind. If you commit yourself to reading or memorization, you can actually change your brain. And this can be observed by the clever scans that we have these days. There are, as you commit yourself to actions, they, they change your very being. They transform you. And that's something that's fundamental to the way we understand Christian obedience, that certain habits begin to change us. 
thinking back to a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Word of God. And certainly, um, all the way through the Bible, we see that the promise of Scripture is that as you meditate upon it, it will change you, it transforms you. So the habit, the commitment, the devotion, the rhythm of that changes your very being, changes your nature, changes who you are for the better if you're doing the right things. Now that said, for a habit to be, to have that power in your life and for that power to be a good thing in your life, it's not only important that you do the thing, but it's also important that you do it in the right way and with the right understanding, that there's a kind of a right practice and also it's infused with the right kind of meaning. And I think this is really obviously true when it comes to the practice of communion, which we're thinking about today. You could have the good habit, which is to take the bread and drink the wine because you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but poor execution, doing it badly. I didn't read to you the whole of 1 Corinthians 11, but a little bit earlier, um, Paul is, really lays into the Corinthian church because they were actually getting drunk at the communion table, which is really hard for us to imagine because most of us have grown up in churches with little thimbles full of wine, haven't we? Or like, you know, if you've been to a mega church in America, you have the little peel-off lids. It's like milk communion or something like that. How could I get drunk with that? And even if you're sharing the cup, it's like the tiniest sip ever because you don't really want to catch germs from anyone else. So there's not much danger in our modern practice of communion of getting drunk. But apparently that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. And there's something really, really like unusual about that. But obviously it was part of their... It was part of their feasting rhythm together. They ate lots and drank lots as they were celebrating um, what is called the love feast or the Lord's Supper or communion or whatever you want to call it. And of course, this is true of other practices as well. Think about prayer. Jesus says, you can be doing the right thing. Prayer is a good habit, but you can also do it in the wrong way. He says, for example, don't babble like the pagans, where you're just endlessly repeating meaningless phrases. So this is true for all spiritual habits, but it's true for this one as well. You can do it in a bad way, even if it's the right thing to do. It's also true that you can be doing the right thing, but do it with the wrong attitude, the wrong understanding, the wrong heart, that there is something misaligned about your understanding and your thinking as you engage in spiritual habits. You know, this is true, um, this is true of any, you know, if, if, probably all of you at some point in your childhood were forced to do things which you were meant to become habitual, but you didn't really want to do them like memorizing your times tables. It's good for you, apparently, although I've never used one, but I, so I've heard. It's good for you, or, or practicing the recorder. But no one likes playing the recorder, and nobody wants to listen to the recorder. But we, we, we think this is really good for children to learn the recorder and saying, busy bee, busy bee, you know, that kind of thing. And Anyway, so good habit, poor execution. The same is true for communion or poor understanding, I should say, bad attitude. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul goes on to say that whoever eats bread or drinks a cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He says, let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I think commentators you know, disagree on what exactly Paul's talking about. But one thing is certain. He says there's something terrifying about casually entering into communion when there is a misalignment in your mind, heart, and life. I think probably what he's talking about 
here is the fact that in the church there was all this infighting. And some people were getting drunk and some people were missing out. And, you know, he was like, go home and eat before you come. And then you don't need to, like, compete in the church, he was saying. But the point is that their hearts were completely wrong as they came to this practice. So we want to have... We want to have the practice, but we want to also have it infused with right understanding and right heart and right way of doing this thing. And this is what I want to speak into. So here we go. What makes this habit beneficial? Same of all habits. It's the action, it's understanding, and it's when it's all infused with delight, with joy, with the presence of God. And I want to show you four things about communion which can help you experience it in a deeper, richer way, about what it means, what we're remembering, what we're recalling, and why we do it. Here we go. Here's the first. The first is that in communion, you recall the facts of the gospel. It's a very basic, fundamental point, but we dare not miss it. You recall the facts of the gospel. This is what Jesus said, isn't it? That you do this in remembrance of me. I was just chatting with my wife this morning. One of the doctors in her, in her training group goes to what is called Sunday Gathering, which is the atheist church, uh, which I believe now has spawned many, many other um, uh, in a network across the world. But we're thinking about you know, the fact of communion is what distinguishes us from the practices which on the surface of it look like church. When atheists go along, they have readings, they, have, they sing together, and they do kind of something like fellowship, where they're kind of friends with each other. But you ask, well, compare and contrast the two things. What's the difference between what we're doing and what they're doing? And the answer is, well, what we're doing has at its heart core historical facts, things that took place in history which forever changed the world. What they're doing has at its heart nothing, a complete vacuum. I don't think you can overemphasize the importance of of grasping this in what distinguishes and makes Christianity unique. It also makes your own spirituality healthy. We have to remember that our faith is built on on facts. There are a couple of wrong paths you can go down if if you don't realize this. One is a kind of danger of spiritual mysticism. All the way through the history of the church, there have been people who would be described as mystics. And any Christians can steer into a kind of mysticism. What is it? It's, it's something like an overemphasis on the experience of God as the most important thing about your spiritual life. So a mystic is a person who, who believes and teaches and practices that the only thing that really matters is that I encounter God. I don't want to belittle the importance of experience or of encounter. There's certainly a a truth element that runs through the Bible. But the thing about experience or mystical experience is that you cannot control it. You could induce something like it, but probably it's false. It seems to me that all through the Bible, when you see people having <coughs> profound encounters with God, it's always at God's own initiative. You think even about John. It says how the book of Revelation opens. It says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So obviously he had a habit every Sunday of coming to God very deliberately, but then something extraordinary happened one particular Sunday, and he had the revelation, which is the book of Revelation. He didn't control that. 
It just happened to him under the sovereignty of God. But if you are a kind of, if in your practice, your spiritual practice, you're kind of a mystical person, then the way you assess the quality of even a worship service is how much you felt you encountered God. I'm not saying that that doesn't ever matter, but what I'm saying is that that's not a, the thing upon which our faith is built, is it? The other way you can steer into, which is unhelpful, I think, for Christians, is a kind of spiritual sentimentality, which is an overemphasis on emotions in the Christian life. Now, I don't, you know, I don't go down the road of thinking that emotions are unimportant, are preached on the vital, central importance of what Jonathan Edwards called spiritual affections, which means that your whole heart is alive with passion and love for the living God. It's one of the tests and the marks of whether you're an authentic believer. Do you love Jesus? But that said, my own experience, and I'm assuming this is true for all of us, is that emotions are very fluctuating things, aren't they? And as much as you want to stir up godly affection and godly desire and godly love, at the same time, our faith is not built on how I'm feeling today. Or else you'd be a very insecure Christian. No, no, when we, when we pull away from, you know, steering towards experience or emotion, what we, what we really want to emphasize is the bedrock of our faith is the fact that it happened. It's very simple, isn't it, when you look at it that way? How do you become a Christian? You believe that it happened. You believe that Jesus was crucified for you, that he was raised from the dead, and that he is now seated at the Father's right hand. These are facts of history not speculations that belong to experience or emotion. And to be a Christian is simply to assent to those facts and to live as though they are true, to align yourself to the truth of them. Experiences will happen. Emotion will come. And in fact, it's a mark, as I said, that if you really believe these things truly, it will begin to grip and flood every part of your being. There's no, you, you can't escape feeling this faith because it's true. But the first thing we know about communion is that we are rehearsing the facts of the gospel. Jesus died. He was buried. And he rose from the dead. There's a funny irony in this, in the fact that Jesus gave us an experience, bread and wine, to recall it by. But it's all about the facts. It's about the truth. Maybe you're somebody struggling with, wrestling with doubt and whether Christianity is true. You've been on a journey wondering whether you should become a Christian or not, whether you can give your life to this thing. Friend, I don't think that you can come to a decision about this in a passive way. You can't just sit there week on week just mulling on, you know, do I feel like it or not? I believe you have to deliberately and actively engage with the truth of what we are claiming. The things we are saying are true about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And since they are things that have been written down and recorded in history, you don't have to unwire or disengage your brain in that process. You can call upon every faculty of your being to, to question whether this is true or not. And that process should be deliberate, active, engaging, and wholly absorbing of your entire nature. I want to encourage you to pursue that. So the first thing we do when we take communion is we just recall these facts. And we praise God that our salvation is not based on how we feel, but on the fact that it just happened. Here's the second thing. You recall the achievements of the gospel. I want to speak into the reality of guilt for a moment. I think guilt is, is a very problematic thing for a Christian. There are two kinds of guilt, as I've often told you. There's the healthy kind, 
which leads you to repentance and leads you back to Jesus so that you can experience forgiveness and transformation. But there's also the toxic kind, which the New Testament calls condemnation or accusation. It's deadly. It lingers. It creates a sense of distance from God, a sense of distance from God's people. It erodes your sense of happiness as a Christian. It erodes whatever love you have for God. It makes you very inward-looking and introspective. It turns you in on yourself. makes you unable to love others and obey Christ. It destroys your sense of assurance. It robs you of peace. It has all these toxic effects in your spiritual walk. And that might surprise you because a lot of people think that, that Christians are people who go around beating themselves and thinking, woe is me, woe is me all the time. I'm such an unworthy sinner. And it seems to me, actually, that that isn't the way New Testament Christians operated at all. They hardly, if ever, even called themselves sinners. That wasn't their prevailing awareness of who they are. And to live that way was to, in a sense, walk in something that we would call unbelief. You know, the gospel, as I've been saying, is something true that happened. Then that ought to connect with your emotional life and your sense of who you are. And if it doesn't, then you don't really believe the gospel. This is the toxic kind of guilt, which I think is is a great enemy to Christians. In fact, it's it's such a toxic and dangerous thing. Isn't it interesting that the very name Satan means accuser? Which gives you a clue as to his main weapon of destroying your faith. It's to point the finger and poke around in the guilty places of your heart making you feel rubbish. Why is guilt so destructive? I think because it leads to one of two parts. It either leads you down the path of endless striving, thinking that you can dig yourself out of this if you just work a bit harder by the sweat of your brow. And a lot of religious commitment, not just you know, misguided Christians, but across all religions, a lot of zealous Faith can be put in that box. And it tends to make you quite an unpleasant person over time. Or, the other effect, which is very common, is it leads to something like despair. The endless self-condemnation, the self-accusation. And as somebody begins to feel this way, generally, you then end up in cycles of sin. The amazing thing about guilt is that often you look to sin to feel better because you don't seem to feel better by your faith. So you end up indulging in all kinds of stuff which you shouldn't indulge in as a way to heal your soul or as a way to experience a momentary escape, to feel better about yourself even just for a few seconds. So what it does is guilt makes you into either a Pharisee or a failure, but what it doesn't do is make you a happy, secure Christian. It feels at peace. This is why guilt in and of itself is not a bad thing, but what you do with it is all important. And I want you to think about communion. When we take communion, it's not the only moment we recall these things, but but what we're doing is we're recalling the reality of the death of Jesus Christ, his atoning death. And we remember a few things about it. We remember that when he died, he paid the price, and that it was a past event It happened. 
No one goes back and digs up. You know, in America, they have a law in, in, in uh, trials where, called double jeopardy. You can't be tried for the same, the same crime twice. And there's a sense in which that's true about your sin. It was tried when Jesus was nailed to the cross, and there's no double jeopardy here. You can't go back and be retried for the same things you feel guilty about. Not only was it a past event, but it was also complete and entire. There was no sin in your life that wasn't atoned for at the cross if you believe in Jesus. Nothing. Even the worst things you've done. Which means that guilt doesn't belong anymore. Praise God. And more than that, Jesus told us that his death was very specific. What I mean by that is he said that he, he said it a couple of times in John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says it twice there in John 10. Which means this, that I think it means this anyway, that when Jesus went to the cross, there was a sense in which he very specifically died for you. If you believe in him, if you're a baptized Christian, it wasn't just vague, a kind of vague cure-all medicine, which you know it just created lots and lots of this medicine, which anyone can just take if they need it. And it was much more. It was more like settling accounts. There was a debt there, and Jesus paid that debt, but it was your debt, very specifically your debt, which means that that thing you feel bad about was paid for at the cross, and dealt with, and atoned for. Not in a vague general sense, not in a way that's like, well, really, God, can you forgive me for this? But in an absolute and complete sense. You, your sin, your failures. And I think this is why when Jesus called his disciples to take communion, he said to them, take, eat. There's a sense of command about that. Which means that when you come to take the bread and drink the wine, you had better drink in forgiveness. I don't mean it in a threatening way. It sounded like that, didn't it? <laughs> I mean it in the sense that Jesus, he wants you to actively receive the forgiveness that's yours because of his death on the cross. Take and eat. Which means that in your soul, in your mind, when you take communion and also when you come to God in prayer, it's like you take hold of the forgiveness of God. And you receive it by faith. And you must never leave that moment without appropriating it and saying, I feel forgiven. Owning that forgiveness is yours. We recall the achievements of the gospel, the facts and the achievements. Here's the third thing. We recall the new relationship of the gospel. We recall the new relationship. And what I mean by this, I want to explore what Jesus says here when he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. One of the characteristics of, I think, the way we conduct relationships in the modern world is that we, although we have relationships with many more people, we live in the global village, at the same time, our relationships tend to have much less permanence to them, don't they? People come in and out of your life constantly. That's why you have, you know, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of friends, friend, friends on Facebook, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I, I love this in some ways. I love the fact that we get to meet new people all the time. But at the same time, you know, people, I've heard it, the comparison once that people are a little bit like Lego bricks. 
You know, a Lego brick only has a certain number of connectors, doesn't it? And once it's full, you can't connect another, anything else to it. In the same way, you, know, you and I, we're a bit like Lego bricks. We only have space, in one sense, for a certain number of deeply meaningful relationships, life-giving, soul-nurturing, uh, friendship, and, and, and that kind of thing. So the nature of the modern world with its, its constant churn and turnover of relationships means that relationally, you might experience something like poverty in your life. There's a richness, isn't there, to old friendships when you rekindle them. It's a bit like chili that's been cooking for three or four hours. It's much better, isn't it? And there's a sense in which your relationships can be richer the older they are. But even that doesn't quite come close to what Jesus means when he talks about covenant. Covenant is something, it has a different quality altogether to it. It's not about how old the relationship is. It's about something at the very core of, of the relationship which has to do with the, the commitment, committed nature of it. We have covenants in modern day life. You think about national treaties as a form of covenant. The union that we live in, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, is a covenant relationship. And as such, there are unbelievable privileges that flow in every direction of where we make one another more wealthy and we, we, we have you know, security and peace and, and all the rest of it. And, and we go to the Olympics under the f- same flag and all that kind of thing. We have Brexit, which is the breaking of a covenant. And all the turmoil that comes, the kind of tectonic turmoil, you feel, wow, the ground under our feet is actually shifting now as a result of the breaking of a covenant. This is a covenant relationship. Probably the most important analogy that the Bible uses is, is, the, is the picture of marriage, actually, as the, the most fundamental and understandable picture of a covenant which explains our relationship to God. You think about how marriage works. We instantly know that permanence should be a feature of marriage in, in an ideal world, even if sadly that isn't always the case. But even people who rubbish marriage, and there are many today who do, they still feel the heart move when you see a couple who've been married for 60 years celebrating anniversary. I don't, I don't think there's anybody who can kind of denigrate that. Say that's nothing, say that's rubbish, say that's meaningless. It moves us, doesn't it, in the core of our being when you see the devotion of a couple, especially when one is sick and that devotion still runs in committed love. And within the marriage covenant, you have signs and seals. The first is the exchanging of rings in our culture. But there are other signs and seals. And Probably the most significant biblically is, is the act of sex itself as a seal of the covenant. It's the covenant-cutting moment when the promises are ratified by this physical act in which the Bible says that the two become one flesh. That's why it's not something to be messed around with. It's why we have such a high view of sex and why we celebrate it within marriage. It's something so important to the sustaining of a marriage. Now, take these sort of ideas and, and begin to think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. This relationship with Jesus, he says, is a covenant one, and so it has all the best features of covenants. It has the best possible deal for you. This is what's actually quite weird about this covenant. Most covenants in the ancient world were a strong nation imposing a covenant on a weak nation. 
called a suzerainty treaty. And in that act, the weak nation had better abide by the stipulations of the covenant or else. But in this covenant, Jesus, who imposes the, the, the terms of it on us, takes all of the cost upon himself and gives us all the benefits, even though the, we're the weak partner. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? We have the best possible terms. He takes us in, we get his righteousness. We get to be in his family, even though we really have no place in it, do we? Naturally speaking. It's totally unbreakable. This is a permanent relationship. Nothing in eternity can break the covenant with Jesus when you're joined to him. I don't think that this is a revolving door. I don't think this is a turnstile. I don't think that you can go out the same way you came in. The nature of this new covenant in his blood, as he calls it, is that when you are in, you are in. And so, because of its centrality to the way you understand your relationship with Jesus, it has certain signs and seals. Baptism is one of them. It's the entry point. That's why we're going to be baptizing Nick this evening. But the other one that the New Testament talks about is communion. Regular communion. As a way of remembering and recalling that the most important relationship in your life is the one you have with Jesus Christ. It changes everything about your life and the way you live. It changes your relationship with everything else you do, and even with yourself, because this is now the ground on which you stand. This covenant relationship that you belong to him, and that you will never be plucked from his hand that he is committed to you, that he is your intercessor, that he's your great high priest, that he prays for you and pleads on your behalf before the Father, pleading his own blood over you, that he lives in you, that he empowers you day to day by the power of his own spirit, which is given to you and poured out upon you. That one day he will not disown you when you stand before him in the judgment, but rather he will say, you're mine. His name's written on your forehead. He's called you his very own. And every time you drink, eat the bread and drink the wine, all of that richness should come to mind and infuse the act. I belong to Jesus. Here's the last thing. You recall the future of the gospel. Jesus says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want you to remember with me for a moment what the word gospel means. It is not just personal forgiveness. I think a lot of people think the gospel message is just about personal forgiveness. And certainly that is a core element. But that's not the whole thing. It's not just about an individual experience of the grace of God. Nor is the gospel just about church and about the, the experience of coming into the family of God and being united in, in this, new, this new society that we call the church. There are definitely two very significant strands of the gospel, but neither of those fully captures what the word means. And some of you will be familiar with this, but you know, in the ancient world, when, when, a, when, a, new, when, an, when a, a son was born to an emperor, 
an announcement would rush out through the kingdom, through the empire, of an evangelion, a gospel. The announcement of the rival of a future emperor. And of course, anyone hearing that would be very interested because you know, if we're interested in royal births today, it doesn't even compare with that because these guys actually held life and death in their hands. They're so powerful. What we're kind of touching on here is that the gospel has what has been described as this kind of cosmic dimension to it. It's the statement that Jesus is now the emperor on the throne. So when the new... Testament Christians went through the Roman world preaching a gospel. Everyone heard it as something almost seditious or rebellious. Because, hang on, there's an emperor on the throne and you're telling us there's a new gospel, a new emperor. And of course, when you begin to let the weight of that sink into your heart and spirit, you realize that there's no part of your life that this doesn't touch. Not just of your life, but of this city of this nation, of this world in which we live. Jesus Christ has a claim on all of it. This is why when Paul's opening up the gospel in a couple of places, like Colossians 1, you know, in that place where he says that by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible and so on. And he says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the, the idea is not, there's the universe, and Jesus died for, for sinners, so he kind of plucked you out of that universe and brought you into a new kingdom. The idea, rather, is that Jesus spilled his blood, and the blood covers the whole thing and is redeeming the entirety of this universe. So that one day, every knee will bow, Paul puts it in Philippians 2, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God. We will see all of creation in alignment to this reality that Jesus is Lord, that he's emperor. That's what gospel means. And when you think about the implications of that, it means that every time you drink the wine and eat the bread, Jesus put it, you're proclaiming his death until he comes. There's an anticipation there. One day he's coming to claim this world as his very own. And you may, you know, all of us all the time are wrestling with allegiances, aren't we? We've got allegiances to commitments, to family, to friends, to work, to our future selves and the ambitions that we hold. We have allegiances to football teams and all kinds of things. But there is only one allegiance that really matters at the end of the day. It's the one that sits under everything else in your life and should control the whole thing. It's the allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. Communion is a rehearsal of that fact. If you're lukewarm, Jesus is saying to you, live for me. If you're living a double life in sin, he's saying to you, live for me. If you're wrestling with decisions in which you don't know what to do, he's saying, live for me. The return of Christ is an inevitability. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's how Paul talks about the return of Christ in Romans 13. He says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now 
than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Every time we eat the bread and drink the wine, preaching the return of Christ to claim this world as his own, we need the awareness that the call is to bring your life into full alignment with the lordship of Jesus Christ who shed his blood and whose body was broken for you. The reason we made the decision at this planting of this church that we would take communion on a weekly basis had some of these strands of thinking as part of it, but fundamentally it came down to this point. We want to be a gospel-centered church. We want to be a church that continually, deliberately, without fail, brings everything that we're doing back to the cross, where Jesus not only died for our sins, but claimed the world as his own. I want to just challenge you as I close. Where does this gospel have a claim on you? In what area of your life do you need to bring to surrender to Jesus as you eat the bread and drink the wine? Is there guilt that needs to be pulled off of you? Is there sin which needs to be repented of? Is there unsubmission, rebellion even, that needs to be walked away from as you partake of the bread and the wine? This is the call. This is the climax of what we do here. The seal and sign of the covenant in which we stand with Jesus Christ. Can we pray together? I want to invite you to remain seated for a few minutes. We're going to respond and by taking communion, unsurprisingly. It would be weird if this was the one week in the year when we didn't. So we're going to take communion and... Um, as we do so, I, want, I would like you just to remain seated for a few moments. And there may just be just one element of what we've said today, whether it's an element of rejoicing or of repentance or whatever it is, which you want to meditate on and chew on and think through as you eat the bread and drink the wine. I want to encourage you to do that. Let me pray and then we'll worship. Lord Jesus Christ, we declare and acknowledge that your death on the cross was the single most important thing that happened in the history of the world and that your resurrection has brought to us new life. And so as we eat the bread and drink the wine today, I pray that you would take hold of all of our hearts. Grip us, we pray, that we would not only believe this covenant relationship, but experience it for ourselves, knowing that we belong to you. And that the full implications of that fact would begin to take hold of every, every square inch of our lives. So that we are yours and yours alone. Body, heart, soul. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.